0: A bizarre controversy rocks Australia's parliament. And then we go back in time to take a look at the story of Captain Jason Seabury. Historical reports say that his ship mysteriously vanished off the coast of Alaska. But when you dig deeper into the reports, his death may have not been mysterious after all. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. Hey, I'm recording this in a totally new location. You know what, before I I go into that, I want to get your feedback on the sound quality. But before I go into that, let's introduce our Patreon supporter, our legacy Patreon supporter, coming into Dead Rabbit Command Floating around. He's a ghost. He's, he's a ghost. Hopefully. Oh my God, that's in bad taste. Hopefully, he's still alive. But for this introduction, give a round of applause to Joel Gonzalez. He's like has a little Casper. Casper has regular legs. He has a little Slimer legs. Like they just come a little wiggle at the bottom. He's floating around. He's alive in real life. Hopefully. <laughs> but right now, he's a ghost. Joel, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, or if you are still alive, again, hopefully. That's fine too. That's actually amazing if you're still alive. Just help spread the word about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. So, the reason why Joel is a ghost and the reason why I might sound differently is man, yesterday's episode took forever to record. I had to start taking a lot of breaks because it's getting so noisy in the neighborhood. It's spring. People are out talking to their friends, building bonds with fellow humans and things like that. I'm not going to rain on their parade. I have no right to, anyways. But it was getting too noisy to record. And I've noticed that trend coming on for a while. So thanks to Patreons like Joel, I've actually started to invest in some acoustic uh, sound dampening foam for the microphone. I'm really going to really pimp out this studio. And right now, I have moved the studio out of my living room into my haunted closet. I am recording this in my haunted closet. It actually is dead quiet in here. The second I go in my living room, I hear a bunch of people laughing. So we're going to see... You guys let me know. Email me, because we don't have the YouTube thing anymore. Email me and let me know how the sound quality is here. Is it better? Is it noticeably better? Do you not notice a difference? Anything like that. But Joel is a ghost in case. I'm pretty sure the ghost in my closet is chill at this point. I say as I've invaded his home to yell for 35, 40 minutes about random stuff. But Joel, let's go ahead, take a corporeal form, and I'm going to hand you the hair hang glider. Let's get our journey started. We're leaving behind Jason's haunted closet. I'm stuck here. <laughs> you guys are leaving the closet. I'm there with you in spirit. We're leaving behind my haunted closet and Dead Rabbit Command. We're headed out to Australia. <sighs> Joel is so used to flying in his ghost form. He gets us there in no time. Specifically, we're headed to Capitol Hill. That's in Canberra in Australia. And most of this information, I I just saw this article the other day. Most of this information I got from an article written for the Daily Beast by Jamie Ross. So thank you, Jamie, for putting this all together. We walk into the House of Parliament in Australia and we go and we sit down. We're disguised as Australians. We're just kind of sitting there, and we all look like the sniper from Team Fortress Two. And we're watching this investigation unfold. These police are walking up to a desk, and they're like dusting it, and then they're like, mm. and then they put on gloves, and then they're still like, hmm, hmm, and they're like, "You're the rookie, right?" And the rookie's like, "Uh, yeah." And they go, "You, you, you do this. You touch the desk. You do all the investigative stuff." So the rookie's like, "Dang it!" So he puts on like three pairs of gloves, and he's like touching the desk, and he's like. Crikey, mate. The legends are true. So that's a really long introduction to basically say, people people in Australia... Sorry, wait, 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 before I go any further, if you have any kids listening to this podcast, usher them out. Put them in their own haunted closets for the first segment. It turns out that what is going on, that long introduction was leading to this. A bunch of dudes have been jacking off on women's desks at the House of Parliament. So, I, I, I know there was kind of a rush of information, so let me break that down for you again. Men are videotaping themselves, masturbating, and ejaculating, not just pretending to, like, hump the desk, be like, <laughs> look at me, ejaculating on members of Parliament's desks who are women. Because they want to do a man's desk, right? That's a little gay. I, I, I don't, it's all gross. Oh, let me start breaking this down here. A desk is a desk, right? man's desk's a woman's desk. The fact that they're targeting the women's desk, it's almost like sexual revenge. You know what I mean? If they were just masturbating on everyone's desk, you'd be like, okay, they have a problem. They just love to masturbate. They're doing it in public, which it's, that's not a problem. It's a crime. That's one thing. But the fact that they're specifically targeting women's desks, it adds it adds a little more malice to it. You know what I mean? If you found out that someone jacked off in your drink, You'd get really, really upset. You'd probably get violently upset. But if you found out that he ejaculated in everybody's drink, you'd be like, oh, Barry. He's all blushing. Right? I mean, it's, it's still disgusting, but it's less targeted. So this has been going on for a while. But luckily, we have a whistleblower going by the name of Tom. Whistleblower Tom has come forward, and his job is to expose the pervert parties of Parliament Like I said, there is a video of a man, he's all pixelated, there was a horrible birth defect, he he was born pixelated, but he's pixelated and he's masturbating at a female parliament member's desk. So we have that. And then Tom has this quote in this Daily Beast article, quote, The fact that it is a female MP, uh, Minister of Parliament, only adds to the disgrace that it is, unquote. Uh, Fully... Fully agree with you, Tom. Like, again, if you're doing it to everyone's desk, that's gross. But the fact that they're targeting a particular group, if they were just doing it on men's desks and not women's desks, I wouldn't be like, progressive! I would still be like, they're obviously targeting for some reason. So Tom has exposed this thing. Tom, I really want to thank you. And then I read the very next sentence of the Daily Beast article. Quote, The whistleblower, who was identified only as Tom in the report, admitted to taking part in some of the misconduct but said he decided that the time is right to expose what's been going on unquote so tom w- tom wasn't batman sitting in the rafters he's like ah, oh, the day of justice will come i just need more evidence i just need more evidence of these men masturbating other than this video footage he was doing it too He's like standing next to two guys and they're all playing soggy cracker with people's desks. And then he feels guilty and he's like, oh, I must expose these villains. I must expose these villains now that I'm done. I'm not going to wait five minutes for everyone else to finish. No, I must expose them. And so on the one hand, it's good that he it's good that he's exposing them. But on the other hand, he was doing it, too. He was (laughs) jacking off on these people's desks. He said there's a little room in the Parliament building that people go to for prayer or meditation. And Tom's like, you won't believe what happens in there. You won't believe the one time I went... I mean, (laughs) the one time other people went in there. His eyes shifting from side to side. He goes, listen, people have sex in there. People go in that room and have sex in there. So it's not just that they're masturbating on desks. They're also having sex in the prayer room. If I had a choice between walking by a room and I heard two people having sex or sitting down at my desk and going to get a post-it note and noticing they're a little more sticky than normal, I would much rather, by, <laughs> much rather walk by the door with the, ah, ooh, ah. Make sure your kids are still in the haunted closet. This segment's not done yet. We got another quote from Tom. Quote, now's the time to speak up. Now's the time to put it on the record. It is a culture of men thinking that they can do whatever they want. Unquote. I like to imagine that Tom, after saying that quote, continued, including me, including me. I belong to a culture of men giving all the dudes, I've, given the male reporter a high five because, like, I don't want to touch your hand. He's like, Yeah, up until five minutes ago, I thought that I could do whatever I want. But now, I was totally wrong. I was totally wrong the multiple times I masturbated on women's desks. No more. I'm going to rat everyone else out. And I, again, I don't, I want to say I'm glad that he's ratting people out. I'm glad that he exposed this, but I don't think we can whitewash this guy. There's no pun intended. I don't think we can whitewash this dude's involvement. He was part of it. And we'll get to why, not why he was doing it. That's just being a pervert, but why he exposed it at the end, which I think is very, very telling. It wasn't, he saw a culture of men thinking whatever they could do. There's a little, I don't know what the libel laws are in Australia, but my hypothesis, my theory, I can imagine Tom coming into my haunted closet right now, and he goes, you know what, Jason? I had, I had the courage to stand up and expose myself. I mean, expose the truth. Why are you making fun of me? Well, Tom, let's take a closer look at this article. It does say in the article that Tom is afraid that he may be fired for leaking the story, not leaking on people's desks, but now he's afraid that because he leaked the truth about himself and other people committing inappropriate acts in a government building that that's why he'll be fired. Not because they'll dig up something or find his DNA all over the place. Here we have this, uh, this is a powerful quote. Quote, it needs to start with the removal of this toxic, powerful, privileged boys club that does what it wants, when it wants, where it wants. To which I imagine Tom added on to that quote, and again, that's what I was doing five minutes ago. I did what I wanted, when I wanted, and where I wanted was on that desk. That chair you're sitting on, reporter. You might want to take a pregnancy test when you get home. <laughs> the reporter's like, I'm a dude. He's like, I'm my jizz is that powerful. So what prompted this? Did he really have a change of heart? I think this is really interesting. Jess, and th- and this is where with the jokes end. This is also where the jokes end. Just recently, there was a young woman, Brittany Higgins, 26-year-old worker at the House of Parliament. She filed a report that she had been raped by a co-worker. And the federal police have started investigating this. They're coming down to the House of Parliament. They're interviewing people. And the idea was that this rape, this no joke, not funny part, this rape of this young woman was sparking conversations about the whole culture of the House of Parliament and the way that sex was viewed in this place. These very powerful people preying on vulnerable people. You have powerful senior politicians preying on interns. The oldest story in the book. And now this story gets exposed. This isn't the oldest story in the book. This normally doesn't happen. But I'm wondering, put on... Our conspiracy caps, we're in Australia, so put them on upside down. My theory is, and I have nothing to back this up, my theory is, and I won't even say Tom was doing it just for legal reasons, but my theory is certain people may have been scared knowing that there is now a federal police investigation looking into sex crimes in the building, and somebody said, we're all going to get caught, so I'm going to be the hero. You guys can get caught. The difference is, and this is always a thing about, like, snitches and rats and stuff like that. I think the easiest way to kind of, if you view a horrible crime and you're no, not a participant in it, you should say something. I have a little asterisk. If it involves gangs, you have to really weigh your family's safety if it involves a street gang or something like that. But for the most part, if you see a crime and you have nothing to do with it, I think you have a moral right to say, I think you have a moral duty to say something about it. But if you're a participant in said crime and you feel like everyone's going to get wrapped up super fast, so you start spilling the beans, that's when you're basically a snitch. Now, you can be a snitch and do good, do a net good for society, like exposing this perversion. I'm not saying that he should have kept his mouth shut. Snitches get stitches, or in this case, snitches get sticky. But, because they're masturbating on him. Okay, <laughs> The the Haunted Closet, I don't know if my jokes are landing in the Haunted Closet. My point is is that it was a net good for society to expose these people, but I, the article made it seem like Tom was this noble figure, and maybe he is. It doesn't say exactly what he was doing. It just said he participated in the activities. I don't know what my—I don't I, I can't imagine a time I'd be hanging out with my friends, my coworkers, and they're like, hey, man, what's up? I was like, hey, dude, what's going on, man? Did you guys watch Justice League, Zack Snyder Cut? They're like, yeah. It took me, took me two days to watch it. It was pretty good. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Flash is my favorite character out of the movie. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Hey, uh, do you want to masturbate on this desk? What? <laughs> what did you just say? Hey, man, you want to come over here and masturbate on this desk? We all have. And I look over. I'm like, oh, dang it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> that was my desk. That was my desk. I'm getting ready to clock into work. I can't imagine myself getting talked into that. And again, there's so many layers to that. I can't imagine myself getting to talked into that. I definitely couldn't imagine myself targeting people. Like as a prank. I'm not saying I would do it, but I could see people just randomly jacking off on desks. That is I'm I'm digging myself into a hole. That is more that's a little more, I don't want to say tasteful, because that's what we're talking about. You know what I mean? It's a difference between, imagine if I was walking down the street and I was bashing people. This is something I can do. This is something I can relate to. I'm walking down the street and bashing in car windows with a baseball bat, and I'm just doing it randomly. Versus me going, I don't like that type of person, and I'm targeting the cars that have bumper stickers that make me think it's that person. That's the difference to me. That's the difference to me. You may not care when your you may not care when your window's busted, but you know if you look down the street and you saw people of all religions and colors and creeds and ethnicities and all their windows are busted, you will say, whoever did this, whoever did this may be a jerk, but he is not a racist. He is definitely not a racist. He just loves smashing windows. That's the difference between people like me and people like the members of parliament. The masturbating ones, not the other politicians. After that incredibly uncomfortable story, let's talk about a movie called Happily. New today on digital and on demand, Joel McHale and Carrie Bechet lead an all-star cast in the dark romantic comedy Happily. The film centers around a couple who, after 14 years of marriage, discover their friends are resentful of their constant public displays of affection. When a visit from a mysterious stranger leads to a dead body, they begin to question the loyalty of their so-called friends. Buy or rent happily today on digital and on demand. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. Dude, I really want to watch this movie. I actually went to go get it loaded up, but my internet was acting kind of goofy. I'll probably watch it tonight. I really want to watch it. Joel Gonzalez. Here comes the tickle monster. He's like, what? (laughs) Where'd this come from? I'm tickling Joel Gonzalez. I don't know. Just popped in my head. I'm tickling, tickling. Everyone get a good tickle on Joel Gonzalez. Joel, let's put you in the carpenter copter. He's like, this is humiliating, man. This is totally humiliating. You haven't tickled any of your other Patreon supporters, so then you should feel special. Joel, let's put you in the carpenter copter. We are leaving behind Australia and we are headed on out to the Pacific Ocean. And hit that little button right there. We're going back in time to January 18th, 1852. Warm warm. Carbonicopters flying over an empty Pacific Ocean. This wind is still. We're just cruising, baby. We are just cruising over the ocean. We, <laughs> we hear Joel go, man, why are the why are the controls for the why are the controls for the so sticky? Jason! And I'm all and I'm all ooh, and I'm all blushing. Joel Gonzalez take me, <laughs> wash off the controls and fly us on out through the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I love this story. This is part two of our Sea Monster Week, Sea Serpent Week. You guys know, long-time listeners of the show know, I really don't like sea monsters, sea serpents, because it's the same thing over and over again. But this story. This story is actually reported in the Maritime Heritage Project. You can tell from the name, it's a pretty snooty organization. They talk about, like, ropes and coils and what type of wood was on what type of boat. It's basically a accumulation of all sorts of historical facts, That if it did not involve the subject of this story, I would be super bored. There are also documents, if you look at the Whaling Museum in New Bedford, they have the papers of the family of the main character of this story. So this is not some flight of fancy. Or is it? Let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at the story. I love the story. It's January 18th, 1852. And Captain Jason Seabury is on the deck of the Mongahela, Mongahela, splash, splash, the boat is moving over the waves, we're dressed up like old time, we're dressed like old timey pirates, we're walking around, we all look like Sneed, or whatever his name was, from Peter Pan, Captain Jason Seabury turns around and goes, how did these pirates get on my ship, immediately we changed clothes, now we're wearing American naval clothes, or whatever, just American clothes, swabby clothes, whatever. Probably could have researched it, but I'm stuck in a haunted closet, so I can't. The Mongahela, captained by Jason Seabury, I'm going to keep saying his first name because it's the best name ever, is floating alongside the Rebecca Sims. Now, they're both whaling vessels, and the Rebecca Sims is captained by Captain Gavitt. The Rebecca Sims is actually coming back from its whaling journey, and the Mongahela is just getting started. Their headquarters is New Bedford, and where they're headed is Alaska. They get some whales, chop them up. I don't know what they do with them. Cook them. I don't think they cook them on the boat. They're like, the whole boat is, whole boat is super smoky. I'm trying to throw two tons of meat into the boiler. But, you know, they get whale, and whale fat, and whale skin, whale eyeballs for witches and stuff like that. These boats, though, are kind of stuck in the Pacific Ocean at this point because there's no wind. There's just a little bit of wind, but not a lot. But, you know, what are you going to do? You're just kind of hanging out, and boats are just kind of sitting there, just going with the motion of the ocean. It's all you can do. And then we hear, Captain! Captain! And we look up, and there's a dude in the little crow's nest, and he has, like, a telescope, and he's like, Captain! That thing! There's something over there! Look, look! And the captain pulls out his own telescope, and he looks, and he sees this large shape in the water, And he's like, hmm, interesting. It must be a whale that was hit with a harpoon, but it didn't die. So men, let's go put it out of its misery. <laughs> Let the feast begin. Let's eat this whale right now. He orders three longboats to approach the wounded whale and put it out of its misery. So Captain Gavitt's on his boat, who's his bit farther off, and then Captain Jason Seabury's on his boat. And they're watching these three longboats go towards this shape. Now, they're not really expecting anything. They just expect, like, to see a bunch of blood. (laughs) They're super bloodthirsty captains. They're all blood, blood, blood. They're not really expecting anything. They're just keeping an eye on what's going on. The longboats get to the shape, and they get a harpoon ready, and they launch it into the water. And the second the harpoon pierces the skin of this lump, it rises up out of the water. Now, these three longboats are very, very close to this thing, and all they see is a giant head up here. It's about 10 feet long, and it looks like a crocodile's head. And it thrashes the water so much, two of the longboats get instantly capsized. Ah, oh, overboard! Oh matey! Look out! Uh, land! ho! Oh! Uh, other pirate stuff! Arr! Arr! The guys on the longboat that hasn't been tipped over, they're like, we're not pirates, you idiots. Quit saying pirate stuff. But the creature is still there, a fresh harpoon in its body. The Rebecca Sims and the Mongahela start moving to the longboats. they got to rescue these guys. They don't know what it is. But remember, there's not a lot of wind, so it's a slow journey. But they're able to muster just enough wind to get to the longboats. They rescue all the sailors. The boats pull alongside each other, and Captain Jason Seabury and Captain Gavit are kind of talking. They're like, what was that? Like, they didn't get a great look at it, but it didn't look like a whale. And the men were like, that was no whale, sir. But there's no wind. They're still kind of stuck out there. They can't make any formidable change of movement. They can't really go anywhere. By the next morning, they look, and the creature is now dead. When they stuck it with the harpoon, it thrashed about and went underwater, but now it has risen to the top, and it is huge. It's 100 feet long, and 10 feet of that is just its head. From nose to the tip of the tail, it's 100 feet long. It's a brownish-gray color with a white stripe three feet thick running along its side. You're like, Crap, the stripe is three feet thick. How big is the thing? It's 100 feet long. How thick is it? It's 50 feet in diameter. So what is that, like five stories? Five stories of a building? That's how thick it is. Captain Jason Seabury is looking down at this thing, and he goes, I... He's, he's, he's got the pirate infection as well. He got bit by a pirate in the middle of the night. He's looking at this thing, and he goes, I've heard the stories. We've all heard the stories of sea monsters. And people come back to port, they're laughed, they're ridiculed. But we have proof, ladies and gentlemen. There's no ladies here. We have proof, gentlemen. Now, obviously, they can't carry a 100-foot-long creature that's 50 feet in diameter. It won't fit on the ship. And then they're thinking, well, we can't drag it. Actually, that's from the story. (laughs) I'm adding that part. But I was thinking, they can't drag it because it would start to decompose and little fishies would be eating it. And eventually, they'd be like, here's our prize. And it's just like, well, it'd still be a giant skeleton, but. You couldn't drag it. So he orders its head chopped off. He goes, if anything, we can keep this head. So they chop the head off. They bring that on board. That's only 10 feet long. And like I said, it was in the shape of a crocodile's head. It had teeth like a serpent where they were like um, uh, angled. Like like that sound effect doesn't help. You know what I mean? Like a, a snake's teeth, how it's like the hook. It has the hook teeth. Each tooth is three inches long. There's 94 of them. Captain Jason Seabury goes, good, we got this head, we got this head. Now we got to preserve it, so they pickle it. They put it in I don't know where they had a giant jar of pickles. They're like, okay, everyone, eat all the pickles today, because we need this giant jar, this giant jar of plastic pickles that my mom sent us with. Let's empty it out. They put the head, they pickle it to preserve it. And he goes, we're going to bring this back. But he also writes up a very detailed report about what happened. Now, remember, the Rebecca Sims is headed back to New Bedford in Massachusetts. And that is where the Mongahela launched from. Captain Jason Seabury, he wants this as proof that sea monsters exist. But also, I think part of him wanted the glory of bringing it back. And at the end of the day, this was a commercial fishing vessel. They needed to get these whales. So he told Captain Gavity, he says, I'm going to give you this detailed report, all these findings that we have you take this back to New Bedford, and then I will return to New Bedford in a couple months after we're done whaling, and the world will finally have proof that sea monsters really do exist. Now, obviously, we know in the future, in the year 2021, this head doesn't exist. It's not in a museum anywhere. There was never any papers written about this head showing up and what a What a huge psychological thing it was when the world realized that there be monsters is actually true. (laughs) It was actually a true warning. The Rebecca Sims came back to New Bedford and they turned in the paperwork and people were excited to see this head. It was reported in newspapers all around the world that this head was going to show up, that this sea monster had actually been captured. But the ship, the Mongahela, captained by Jason Seabury, never returned to New Bedford. Years later, years later, on Umnock Island, off the coast of Alaska, a piece of debris is found washed up on the beach. It is weathered by the waves. It is weathered by time. But it is still quite clear what name is written on this name board from a boat. Mongahela. Mongahela, or the the correct pronunciation of that word was written on this thing. So the boat was never found. The nameplate was found off the coast of Alaska. And at that point, that kind of solved the mystery. The boat never showed up. You assumed it was lost at sea. But when the nameplate shows up, washed up on a beach in the location that it would have been going to, it definitely seals the deal. They didn't go to Bahama and become pirates because they all got bit by pirates, caught the pirate disease, and eventually succumbed to it. This is a really interesting story because what we know is real is the captain is real. The story is supposedly real. Supposedly there are documents based on this, based on this story. You have to want, this is where you start to get fishy, no pun intended. Was it a story Captain Jason Seabury made up or a a story that Captain Gavitt made up for whatever reason? He goes, ah, that that Captain, Captain Jason Seabury is totally going to wreck that ship in Alaska. I'm going to write this crazy tale. And he'll never be around to expose it anyway. So the names are real. The boat names are real. The Mongahela was lost at sea in 1853. It was considered, it was never seen again. All these details are real. The only thing we can't verify is, because everyone who witnessed it is dead, is the monster's head. But these documents do exist. And again, if I was reading this on a fringe website, no no offense. You know, I love think About it, docs.com Mysterious Universe, Anom, Alien, all this stuff. I love this. But if this story appeared on those sites, I would be a little more suspicious. Do the documents actually exist? Did those boats actually exist? But because this is coming from the MaritimeHeritage.org website and the whalingmuseum.org website, To be fair, the whalingmuseum.org website only verifies that Captain Jason Seabury is real and that he has papers in the New Bedford Whaling Museum. They don't specifically say there's the monster head as part of those papers, but they do confirm basic facts about the story. Is the story actually real? We don't know. and We never know with these type of stories because they're so long ago, but... Let's put on our conspiracy caps here and say that it's real because that's the world we want to live in where ghosts and ghouls and haunted closets actually exist. And I think for a a huge portion of it, it is real. I think for a huge portion of it, it is real. I Conspiracy caps fully on, what if Captain Jason Seabury's boat wasn't lost at sea? It wasn't a storm. They didn't run out of provisions. The boat just didn't take on too much water. What if they traveled with the head of a nearly extinct species? But for a species to live that long, to get that big, to continue to exist, it would have to have a mate. Was it the last of its kind, or was there a second one, or a family of them? In the ocean as well. And while the first creature was sick or wounded in some way, they saw it get finished off and chopped up by this captain. And so they followed it. They didn't understand what these giant wooden monsters that barely floated on the surface of their environment were. They couldn't make sense of all the noises that they heard as they swam silently underneath it, stalking this vessel. They didn't know what they were following other than the murderer of one of their family. And so these creatures silently stalked this boat. And while the men on board slept, when the men on board worked, when the men on board played their accordions with parrots on their shoulders, these creatures simply watched them. Until eventually, it was time to strike. I would like to hope that Captain Jason Seabury And the good crew of the Mongahela fought valiantly as a hundred-foot serpent wrapped itself around the boat and began to coil itself tight, smashing timber and destroying the vessel. I like to think that swords were drawn, serpent flesh was cut, harpoons were used, torches were lit and held against its scaly skin, And in the darkness of night, they saw two more serpents rise from the water surrounding the Mongahela. I like to think they fought valiantly that night. I like to think they died bravely. But whether they did or not, we don't know. We just know the only piece of that entire boat left was its nameplate. Man still builds bigger and stronger and faster boats and claims the globe is their own. Land, water, and air are the dominion of humanity. But is it really? We don't know what lurks in the depths of the ocean, but the depths of the ocean knows what sails on their waters. We only exist on the ocean because they allow us that right. Because at any point they could decide to rise up and take back the waters. They could turn the beautiful blue oceans blood red. Radio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash Radio. Twitter is at Radio.